The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and to find food truth. And today we have with us a wonderful author, a fabulous speaker, Shannon Hayes. Shannon Hayes holds a Ph.D. from Cornell University, but she has written several books that really take her out of that realm of PhD-dom and into a very provocative area of feminism and homemaking. Shannon is the author of Radical Homemakers, Reclaiming Domesticity from a Consumer Culture. Welcome, Shannon. Hi, Melinda. Thanks for having me. I am delighted. You know, your book has been described as brilliant, visionary, and practical, and I'm going to add three more adjectives compelling, provocative, and timely. I guess we should start by saying how I met you. I heard you speak at the American Dietetic Association meeting in 2007. You were speaking at the time. You're a farmer. You're a grass-fed beef livestock farmer, Mm -hmm. and you were speaking about the benefits of grass-feeding to an audience that was largely unaware, still largely unaware about the benefits, and I remember you dropped a hint of this idea of we need to move into this radical homemaking and go back into the home to find the answers, and you received a large applause for that. (laughs) That was a a very funny moment because I was afraid I was going to be booed off the podium there. (laughs) Not at all. I was quite a surprise. Not at all. I think many of us sense what you have captured here. First of all, let's let's go ahead and define radical homemaker. What is a radical homemaker? Okay. Well, radical homemakers are people who are living values-driven lifestyles. And they're people who, whether they're single or in a family, they have chosen to live their lives by four primary values, and that is ecological sustainability, social justice, family, and community. And they don't want to use their their life energy in any way that does not support those aims. And so what they do, oftentimes in this culture and economy, if those are your aims to live that way, you can't necessarily make a lot of money in this world. And so what they have done is they have reclaimed domestic skills as a way to make up for the economic shortfall and as a way to rebuild a more life-serving economy. Well, one of the pieces of this book talks about, well, you've interviewed radical homemakers all across the country, and they have shared their insight and their wisdom and the choices that they've made. There's one very important part that you talk about, though, and that is health insurance. And I, like you, the the women that you interviewed, you know, many of them are either choosing not to have health insurance or they recognize that they work outside of their ideals in order to get the health insurance. Let's talk about that. You yourself have chosen to have health insurance for your children. That's right. This is one of the very, I I think this is one of the subjects that's very touchy in the book, very sensitive. It gets a lot of people very, very angry when when they get onto this discussion. And it's very, I think it's what makes the book so timely and, as you said, provocative because I, I was willing to venture into the world of those of us who choose not to have it for ourselves. A number of people 
have chosen not to have health insurance because they believe that in order to have health insurance, they need to live a life that either forces them to break these tenets that they believe in or that pushes them to be unhealthy in order to have that insurance. So they would have to work in stressful situations. So a number of people have chosen to sidestep health insurance to forego it for the option of having a healthier lifestyle instead. And some people do find ways of getting the health insurance. They either have a partner who has a job that enables them to have it or, you know, they come across it in whatever way they can. And their life circumstances determine whether or not they're able to. But this is a situation in our country where there are just no good answers for this. And the book discusses that, that it's an unfair situation and some of us um, have to choose to live what some people might think are risky lifestyles of not having that. But we feel that working for causes that we don't believe in or having high-stress jobs is more risky for our health than simply not having it for the time being. You know, Shannon, I think this is probably one of the most important issues that you bring to the table. And talk about needing a revolution. I want to mention Stormy McGovern. She's one of the radical homemakers that you interview. Mm -hmm. And she had gone down to do some relief work for Hurricane Katrina, and she contracted a chronic health condition. And she talks about not being treated like a citizen of the United States because she can't afford health insurance. Have you stayed in touch with her at all? I'm not in touch with her right now. I I know she's still pretty much doing what she was doing when I left off with her. Yeah. living, Living the same lifestyle, yeah. So if you are healthy and things are moving along well, it's a little bit easier to live those ideals that you mentioned, those very critical, important ideals. Mm-hmm. But when a chronic illness comes up or even a genetic illness, then it really puts us in a very difficult situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why in the book we said, you know, each person has to make their own decision about how they're going to deal with this. Absolutely. Um, for example, in our own family, my husband and I have chosen to forego it. And the re- one of the reasons why we chose to forego well, we have multiple reasons. We decided, number one, we seem to be in excellent health at this point in our lives. And we realized that every time we made an insurance payment now, we were inhibiting our ability to make the insurance payment later in life because it was fast, very quickly approaching and getting ready to exceed our actual income levels. Mm. So we had to make a choice on that ground but also because we knew that we were healthier and every time we have paid for, you know, and in the care that we need, we can pay for. Another reason why we decided to forego it is we were paying for it and there was a time when we ended up needing it and we found out how difficult it was to actually get the companies to pay for the services they were supposed to be providing. And that's when we realized that we had a, there was a conflict, uh, a conflict of interest that if a, comp- if a company's Profit is based on their inability to provide a service or their ability to get out of providing the service they're marketing, then there's a conflict of interest. But that's a personal choice. That is not something that we recommend everyone ubiquitously does in the book. What we do want people to do is think about it because we did realize every time we paid our insurance premiums, we were paying to keep a system in place that was socially unjust for the rest of America, and that was not acceptable to us. But we also understand that not everybody is in that same position. And Stormy McGovern was fascinating because she was experiencing this, and a number of us have experienced trying to deal with 
some of our social health care systems and, and what it, the stigma can, can do to you. And what she also shows is how effective and easy it has been for her to navigate the alternative health care field with her skills and her resources, that she's been able to get care there where she's not able to get care is conventional allopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, I, first of all, I, I, I highly recommend this book as required summer reading because it brings to the table these critical issues about who we are as a society and what our families mean. And in the introduction to your chapters, you you bring the wisdom of others with quotes. And you have a quote here on the very first page in the preface. It says, for national and social disasters, for moral and financial evils, the cure begins in the household. This comes from Julia M. Wright from The Complete Home in 1879. Yes. Yes, she was writing during the last golden era of homemaking. Right. <laughs> we haven't had one since. <laughs> right. Well, it's very interesting because if indeed this is true, then I think our health care and health care reform not just health insurance reform, health care reform, is really at the crux of this issue. It is. And one of the things that the radical homemakers have done, too, is they have assumed a certain degree of responsibility for their health for their health care. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the things that needs to be understood, that health care is different than health insurance. Right. And radical homemakers take responsibility for their health care, and health insurance is a separate matter. And we have a health insurance problem, but they're choosing to live a life that provides care for their health. They're doing things like really watching how they eat. They're very careful about what goes into their body. They're very careful about how much stress they have in their lives. They're doing their best to stay connected with family and community to maintain their well-being in that way. And they're also learning skills that have long been forgotten. For example, the last thing they would do if they had a cold is go running to the doctor. Many of them have a lot of skills working with herbs, working with homeopathics, working with foods, and figuring out how to do a lot of the basic healing skills that have kind of been forgotten that we tend to turn toward pharmaceuticals and prescriptions for when a lot of it was traditionally taken care of at home. Now, these are people who are not, you know, taking big risks, but they have figured out that, you know, good homemade chicken stock will go a long way and that there's a number of herbs growing right outside their doorsteps that they can take advantage of as well. And they're reclaiming a lot of those skills. Mm -hmm. Do you have the book in front of you? I don't. I was going to ask you to read from page 83, but since you don't have it... Just just one minute, actually. I think I can probably acquire that pretty quickly. Hold on. Okay, sure. And you want page 83? Right, page 83. I think if you could just read that first paragraph for our listeners, I think it's very important. Okay. We have lost the innate knowledge and traditional craft essential to countless functions for our daily survival, with the end result being a disconnection from our communities and our natural world. So complete is this detachment that we are unaware of the ecological and social damage created by mass production for our daily needs. Screened from the production process, we buy chicken breasts without considering the workers in poultry factories who must breathe toxic fumes or the loss of topsoil from irresponsible grain production. We purchase our detergents and cleaners without considering the ingredients that might be poisoning our families and our water supply. We buy inexpensive clothing, never considering who must produce the fiber, 
weave the cloth and sew the garments for paltry wages, or what country must have its rivers polluted with dyes? No matter where we live, we expect fresh tomatoes in December and iceberg lettuce in January, regardless of the fact that it took more calories to grow and ship them than they deliver when we eat them. I think that paragraph summarizes so much our society. We take so much for granted. Somehow we have lost that connection. What happened? (laughs) Well, I'm going to point where a lot of people point the blame now. I point it first and foremost to the Industrial Revolution. Mm. You know, we had some great improvements. Let's be honest and point out that householding was not easy prior to the Industrial Revolution. It was a lot of hard work. And we've had some wonderful labor-saving technologies that did come out of that. For example, the washing machine is a really great thing. Right. (laughs) Um, So we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater, but we do need to be critical of what happened during that era because the first thing that happened with the Industrial Revolution is men left left the home. Men and women used to, used to share responsibility for the home prior to that time. And when the Industrial Revolution happened, men left the home to find work, and they worked for wages to replace the things that they would have provided at home. And then slowly it became the man's sphere was the workplace and the woman's sphere was the home. And then we began to come up with ways to replace many of the women's functions. So where homemaking was once a craft tradition, where women, each generation, would teach the skills to the next generation, we eventually lost that. And it was supplanted by something that factories could provide so that the woman's sphere became the home, but it was really all she did when we lost the craft traditions behind it, whether it was, as I mentioned before, making our, her own medicines, cooking food, growing food, repairing clothing, weaving fabric, whatever those things were, soon became, all she became was a shopper and a driver, a chauffeur, to drive to the different things that had to be done and to just buy the things that were needed. So the skills and the craft traditions were outsourced to people who were paid less to lands that could be polluted. And then we were left with someone here who just, wielded the credit card, and stayed behind the driver's seat. And then that became a very, very depressing vocation. And then we started seeing a lot of women suffer from housewife syndrome, which is what really kicked off that second wave of feminism when Betty Friedan came out with the feminine mystique in 1963. So in a nutshell, that's what happened. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Shannon Hayes, and she's the author of a fantastic new book called Radical Homemakers, Reclaiming Domesticity from a Consumer Culture. Shannon, we should touch on two two points here. One is a quote from Simone de Beauvoir from The Second Sex, 1949. Woman's work within the home is not directly useful to society, produces nothing. The housewife is subordinate, secondary, parasitic. And I want to juxtapose that with redefining wealth and poverty, <laughs> if I might. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. We have to think about that time period when it was written. And as I was explaining a few moments ago, homemaking went through a stripped-down process mm-hmm. where the craft traditions, the things that was happening in the home became outsourced, okay, and Originally, these were, these were actions that held power. In fact, our, our independence from Britain 
I mean, yes, there was a war involved, but it started with the homes realizing that they could start relying on themselves and stop relying on imported goods from Britain, that they could start building a local economy and start using local resources rather than trying to extract everything from a foreign country. And it was because of what people were doing in the home. And when you speed forward a couple hundred years to the 1940s, we've gone through the Industrial Revolution, we've really modernized our country, we're in love with factories, we're in love with outsourcing things. The home suddenly seems like this extraneous place. It just seems like this superfluous place where people lay their heads at night and it has no meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's because, as I said, the woman's role in it was reduced to just driving and consuming. So she was right in that respect. And the woman didn't have power because if all she did was shop and drive, it was work that really didn't require much intellect or skill or resourcefulness to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And what's happening now is nationwide, actually worldwide, a lot of the industrialized nations, I'm learning there are people who are starting to step into this movement. We are realizing that what we thought was wealth, to have a really good paying job, for example, was actually leading to poverty in many ways because people were impoverished for time. They were impoverished health-wise. Chronic illness is at an all-time high because people spend so much time working for somebody else and not taking care of family, of relationships, of their own personal food needs. They're buying a lot of highly produced, processed foods, and they're not taking care of their own bodies. And so what's happening right now is for a period of time we've thought that money was wealth, but now we're realizing we're trading all of our life energy for money and it's not giving us our true wealth, which is time, the ability to be creative, the ability to work towards things that we truly believe in, the ability to take care of the people that we love. And these are the things that can happen when someone is focused on the home and is realizing that they're replacing the mon- monetary needs with domestic skills. And so they're, they're, we're making a trade now. I think this country is in a process of waking up where people are coming forward and realizing that the jobs in the, in the extractive conventional economy are leaving them deprived. Maybe, maybe they have a salary, but they probably also have high debt and they can't take care of their fundamental needs. And so they would rather have the wealth of time, the ability to live a life according to their values, rather than just a paycheck. Well, I think it's really interesting how society constantly is pushing us away from those core ideals. And you have a great example from radical homemaker Sylvia Tanner. She's a single mom. She's raising her son. You write how she witnessed firsthand how the insatiability of neighbors quickly translated into her own feelings of impoverishment. (laughs) yes it's contagious yes it is it's the keeping up with the joneses syndrome yes and now we're trying to keep down with the joneses now we're all trying to figure out how to live on less in this movement right (laughs) um yes that that is contagious and it's and it's a way of we we tend to value ourselves we we've come up with a way of putting monetary value on who we are by how much money we bring home right And that's been a cultural norm for quite some time. And what's interesting is we value how much money we bring home, but in the, in in our equation of self-worth, 
But we don't value the other side as how much money goes out, how much money is going out to an absurd mortgage, how much money is going out to, you know, paying high taxes on these salaries that we have, how much money is going out to buying the wardrobes to keep the job that requires that we look and dress a certain way and to all the cars that we need to get to all the different places we need to go in order to look like we're having this high-status life. Right. And so there becomes a lot of pressure to, to have these numbers coming in and people don't want to talk about the numbers that are going out. And for many, it's, it's a losing game. And to take this, to, to choose this path of radical homemaking where instead you cut those expenses and you, you live using your domestic skills, you do have some money coming in. Everybody has some kind of money coming in from someplace. But you have to learn to value yourself from within. You have to develop your own sense of self-worth because you will no longer have that society tag that puts a worth over your head because of a paycheck. You have a great chapter devoted to reclaiming domestic skills, and valuing those skills has been a common theme throughout the book. Do you want to talk a little bit about how we start to reclaim those skills? Sure. One of the things that I kind of thought when I started researching the book was I thought I would be talking in this chapter about learning how to can tomatoes mm-hmm. <laughs> or can green beans. And the more I explored the subject, I realized there was something else going on deeper that these homemakers knew because canning tomatoes may not be appropriate everywhere in the country. We all live in different microclimates. We all have different um, skills that we require to live. And so I realized I was looking for some broader skills that many of these people had to cultivate in order to live within this lifestyle. And one of the first and most important things that they had to reclaim was the ability to nurture their relationships. Because if you don't have relationships, not only is this lifestyle very lonely, but those relationships also supplant money in many cases. And that means learning to work with family, with friends, and with community. You mentioned Sylvia Tanner a few moments ago, and Sylvia was a single mom raising her kid living this way. And the reason why she was able to do it was because of her friends and her community, because they were able to support her and she was able to support them. These are friendships, by the way, that are not simply, hey, let's meet for coffee and, you know, talk bad about our husbands or something like that. These are friendships of people who, they'll go to one another's deathbeds. They are the people who are taking care of each other till the very end. These are friendships that are taken as seriously as marriages. These are very, very intense, serious relationships of people taking care of each other. They are not like just, you know, happy dinner party kind of relationships. But what those are is these are the people who can loan you money. These are people who can help you take care of your children. These are the people who, um, when someone in your family is sick, they show up with food. They help make sure that your home is in good repair. These are very, very important relationships to have. Another skill is working with a life-serving economy, and that's basically learning how to, that money is not always exchanged in a life-serving economy. The idea is to learn how to to, uh, generate a living for all rather than a killing for a few, and that means that money is only part of the overall portfolio. Skills and sharing and donating are all part of a life-serving economy, not just money, which is what's our conventional economy. And probably one of the most important things that they have cultivated an ability to, to teach themselves. 
these people are what you would call autodidactic. They're self-learners. They don't worry about whether there's going to be a course to teach them how to be homemakers. They go, they realize to be a homemaker, you know, I need to learn this particular skill. You know what? This toilet is not working, and every time I have to call a plumber, I've got to pay someone 50 to $60 an hour. I'm going to teach myself how to fix my toilet. And they go find a book someplace, either in a used bookstore, in a library, or they have a friend who's a plumber, and they go talk, and they, they roll up their sleeves, and they take the back off the toilet, and they figure out how to do it. If they want to drink beer, they figure out how to brew their own beer, or they figure out how to grow something really good in their garden because they're better at the garden, and they find someone who home brews beer, and they trade for it. But these people at their core are able to teach themselves. They don't rely on external authorities to impart knowledge to them. They take it upon themselves to make their lives happen and to learn what they need to learn in order to make it work. Shannon, we just have a minute left, and I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to let our listeners know something that you learned when you were writing this book that I neglected to ask or bring forth. I think when people start thinking about this lifestyle, the first thing that happens to them is is they get hit with fear. In fact, if you want to have some fun, if you're considering this book, go on to Amazon and read the bad reviews about the book because the bad reviews will fill you with fear. They'll mention that it's dangerous, that the ideas are naive, and that anyone who lives this way is in for, you know, impending doom in some way. Amazing. (laughs) And I think our society wants us to be that way. They want us to be fearful. When you are afraid, you will keep slaving at a job that is making you physically sick because you are afraid to live without health insurance. When you are afraid, you will not take the steps to be independent, to stand up for social justice. You will not take responsibility for yourself. You will continue to feel that you have to rely on whatever is conventionally out there, whatever the conventional path is. If you're afraid of what people think, you will continue to go to the job to get the paycheck, even if it is sucking your soul out of you. And if there's something that I learned with this lifestyle... These people came from all walks of life. Some had college degrees. Some dropped out of school. They were so bright, but none of them were afraid. None of them were afraid. They had a dream about how they wanted their lives to be, and they pursued it, and they didn't let our national culture of fear break them down. And if there's anything I would impart to people, it's don't be afraid. If this lifestyle speaks to your heart, then look at what you are afraid of and confront it and let it go and move forward to something that's going to bring you greater peace. Shannon Hayes, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the inspiration, and thank you for this remarkable book. We've been speaking with Shannon Hayes, author of Radical Homemakers, Reclaiming Domesticity from a Consumer Culture. And just to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for listening.